What's up, pirates? Welcome to the Jesus Movies podcast, where we search movies for lines, scenes, characters, and themes that trace truth in the gospel. I'm Kevin Carlock. I'm here with my fellow London study abroad student, Graham Hooten, and our hope is that you'll join us on the great journey of storytelling by asking thoughtful questions about why certain movies and moments resonate or don't resonate, and what that might say about the movie, about you, and perhaps about humanity as a whole. Today, we're talking about Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl. And Graham, my one question for you is, can a pirate be a good person? You know, I wouldn't say that Jack Sparrow is a great person. But if you're going to call Will Turner a pirate, then I think you actually might be able to make the argument. Yeah, totally. So this is a movie that's based on a theme park ride. And I want to challenge you. Can you name another movie that's based on a theme park ride? Jeez, you put me on the spot like that. 100%. Usually it kind of goes the other way around. <laughs> so your only options were Dinosaur, 2000. The movie came out in 2000. The Country Bears, 2002. Okay. The Haunted Mansion, 2003. Mission to Mars, 2000. Tomorrowland, 2015. Tower of Terror, 1997. And Pirates of the Caribbean, 2003. So kind of all in that like 2000 to 2003 span. And not yet considered. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I've probably seen this movie 15 times. And I think every time I have to watch it, I am like meticulously questioning the plot scene by scene to make sure that I'm following. Because I think it's really complex. There's a lot of characters with complex and logical desires. Desires that naturally create an exciting, conflict-rich plot that gives those characters real reasons to experience believable change. So... I'm a big fan. It's a great film, and I agree that there's a lot of world building that goes on in this first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, but I do agree there are a lot of characters here, characters that are important that aren't even on screen very much. You've got conflicting storylines, plot lines, uh, where are we, what location, but it all, I think, adds together to make for a really compelling and, and definitely engrossing narrative. I agree, and I personally think the writing is really good. This was written by Ted Elliott and Terry Rosio two careers that I follow really closely because of their excellent online blog called Wordplay. It's really old school, but it details their Hollywood screenwriting careers and offers a lot of insider advice that I sincerely hope isn't outdated because I've been (laughs) listening to a lot of it for a while now. Uh, But they co-wrote Shrek and Aladdin, Godzilla, The Mask of Zorro, several others, and of course, all five of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, except for the fourth one on Stranger Tides. Awesome. Also, another thing I found in my research is that this movie was originally written for Hugh Jackman, and that's why they named him Jack Sparrow. Uh, But Disney felt that Hugh Jackman wasn't popular enough, so they cast the more famous Johnny Depp, who says that he based his performance off of rock star Keith Richards. And people were actually so upset with him on set for how he was playing Jack that he was nearly fired on several occasions for the way he was taking on the character. And I'm super glad they didn't, and I guess... They all are too, because he absolutely stole the show, and he won just a ridiculous amount of awards for his Jack Sparrow character. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I, it would have been interesting to see Hugh Jackman in this role, because it just doesn't seem to fit uh, in the way that Johnny Depp does. And I think for me, it's the subtle. It's just the subtle, like little body language and the subtle facial expressions that really kill you. I mean, it's it's incredible. There's a you know a one second shot of Jack, and you feel like you get and a minute's worth of emotion out of it. Yeah, like, it's like you said about the Joker, like, you just can't take your eyes off of him. Like, when I think about Pirates of the Caribbean, the first person I'm thinking of is Jack Sparrow. Yeah, I mean, it is a Jack Sparrow movie. Well, we've got a lot to get through. Should we go ahead and get into the awards? Let's do it, baby. Why don't you go ahead and hit me with your Lazarus Award for the most high-key gospel moment in Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl. All right, here we go. My Lazarus Award goes to... The moment when Barbosa explains the curse of the Black Pearl to Elizabeth. This moment sets up what the film is entirely about, which is paying back a debt um, of something that has been wrongfully taken. And so in this scene, you got Barbosa in the captain's quarters. He has invited Elizabeth, who he has recently kidnapped, to come and dine with him. Uh, and he explains to her this curse uh, of Cortez's stolen treasure, how Cortez came to the Aztecs uh, and bribed them and got uh, 882 gold medallions, I believe. Uh, and so the pirates took all this treasure and they went and spent it. Um, the more and more they spent it, the more greedy they got. And the more they realized that uh, food would not fulfill them, it turns to ashes in their mouth. They No touch would satisfy them. No human company, no uh, drink would satisfy. And so um, what Barbosa wants to do is finally attain this final medallion, which is possessed by Elizabeth, return it to where the uh, treasure 
is um, with Cortez and shed blood, which will ultimately pay for the sacrifice of the uh, of the Black Pearl, um, and basically make it so that the the members of the Black Pearl are no longer captive to this half living, half dead nature that they're in. A terrible curse. The more we came to realize, the drink would not satisfy. Food turned to ash in our mouths. And all the pleasurable company in the world could not slake our lust. We are cursed men, Miss Turner. Compelled by greed we were, but now we are consumed by it. I think this is um, really powerful because it's essentially arguing the idea that um, we are compelled by greed and we can never satisfy our own greed. At the very least, the pirates are compelled by greed, and they can never fully satisfy their own greed. Um, and I think one of the interesting little parallels they have in here is they you see Barbosa uses the green apple that he gives to Elizabeth, right. which definitely shades of like Genesis three and yeah. uh, Satan tempting Adam and Eve with the you know eating from the the apple and the tree of good and evil. And so at mm-hmm. Genesis three fourteen it says, so the Lord God said to the servant serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. Um, this is God talking to Satan here. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. So as a consequence for Satan deceiving Adam and Eve, he actually uh, says that you will eat dust for all the days of your life. And the pirates here say food literally turns to ashes in their mouth as a result of their disobedience and them uh, basically um, completing this mutiny of Jack and, and stealing the like stealing the, the treasure. Like They will experience the consequences of that. Um, it reminds me also of Jeremiah 2.13. This is God talking to Israel. My my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Um, but finally, when Jesus comes, Jesus is the fulfillment of that broken cistern. He is replacing that cistern that has been broken. Um, essentially, people trying to create satisfaction and fulfillment for themselves. In John 7.37 and 38, it says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Um, so essentially, while we have tried to d- dig our own cisterns, Jesus comes and gives us something that is not uh, pleasure-inducing, but ultimately satisfying. Um, and I think those are that's an important distinction to make that Jesus didn't come so that we would have all of our worldly pleasures fulfilled, um, but that we would be completed and made whole. And so I think, you know, it's interesting. The pirates are a lot more cognizant of their own deadness than I would say most people living today are cognizant of our own deadness. But I still think it's a a powerful metaphor for the consequence of sin uh, in the world and ultimately what it takes to uh, end that curse of sin. Great scripture tie-ins. I think the pleasure thing is kind of a double-sided coin too because there is a very real way in which God affirms our pleasure on this earth as created by God and capable of channeling worship of us to him, and we'll get into that later. But I want to ask you about the treasure because in National Treasure, we talked about how treasure is kind of like what it means to know Jesus and uh, all of the scripture that kind of says, you know, once you find this treasure, nothing ever compares and you'll give up everything for it because Jesus is the true booty, <laughs> as he said. And uh, so this is kind of an interesting play on that. It's the inverse, right? The treasure is cursed. So what do we make of that total switch on the trope? Yeah, I think Barbosa and his crew are looking for the treasure and consuming it because it's going to fulfill their own desires, right? Like they're using it for pleasing company. So, I mean, basically that insinuates prostitution they're using it to get drunk they're using it to eat whatever their heart desires um they're essentially looking at the treasure as a means to an end they're not valuing the treasure in and of itself this is not a ben gates looking at the declaration of independence looking at uh the you know the templar's treasure as something that is inherently valuable um in and of itself got it so means to an end versus end for itself I'm giving my Lazarus award to Will and Elizabeth's final kiss on the stone overlook at the very end, which I'm calling the official cinematic christening of their <laughs> legendary romantic relationship. Oh. This is the path you've chosen, is it? After all, here's a blacksmith. No. 
He's a pirate. Wow, so that's kind of emotional. And I want to talk about two basic things here. One is the idea of star-crossed lovers, and two is just beauty. So first, star-crossed lovers. This is the second-to-last scene in the movie. At this point, Will is fully pirate and has done things that 100% merit the death penalty, and he knows it. Mr. Turner! I will accept the consequences of my actions. Elizabeth, on the other hand, has sort of mentally dabbled and expressed desires about pirating, but hasn't actually done anything illegal, and for the parallel to be more clear, we need to try to think of her as legal and moral purity. She's lived an obedient, worthy life and is destined to marry the similarly obedient and worthy Commodore Lorrington. Except that she isn't, because she throws everything away to be with this low-life blacksmith, this thieving and traitorous pirate Will Turner. And hopefully you can kind of see where I'm going with this why would she do that relationship of tremendous social and economic inequality. Um, and I want to contend that this textbook case of star-crossed lovers resonates with us so deeply because we are the undeserving Will Turners that get to marry the perfect Elizabeth. The scandalous grace of Christ is that he throws away everything to save and marry us. And think about how many great hymns talk about this. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, which is my favorite Christmas hymn written by Charles Wesley, Leaving riches without number, born within a cattle stall, this the everlasting wonder, Christ was born the Lord of all. He left riches without number to come and save and be with us. Hark the herald angels sing another Christmas hymn. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. He lays his glory by, he casts his riches and kingdom and glory aside to come and save and be with us. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king, he the theme of heaven's praises robed in frail humanity. In our longing and in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. So behold this wondrous mystery that the almighty, all-powerful God would condescend and would stoop and would come down and take on frail humanity just to ransom us. Um, and so let's do some scripture to kind of bring this home. This is Hosea 2 to go Old Testament first. Verse 16, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So kind of that tremendous language of like husband and wife and betrothal, you know, us calling God my husband. And then to go New Testament, this is maybe the more mainstream quote for the kind of the God to follower as husband bride relationship. This is Ephesians 5. Just listen to the language, even if you can't really follow it like verse by verse logically. Let's just, I think like the metaphor is like really persistent in these verses, starting at verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So kind of over and over and over there, I know it's a little complicated, but we kind of get this like Jesus and the church, Jesus and the church, husband and wife, husband and wife. There's that kind of clear one-to-one. -one. So that's kind of the idea behind part one, forbidden, scandalous, shocking romance. We get to marry Elizabeth? What? I know I don't deserve Elizabeth. Thoughts on that before we hit part two? I absolutely love it. Um, it. What it reminds me of is one of our personal favorites, Emmanuel's Land, a song by yeah. our college church. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. Mm -hmm. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Um, that is That has been just such a powerful, uh, it's such a, you know, especially in our culture, we tend to romanticize uh, just romantic relationships. And like, that's our picture of love. Um, but to look at God through that perspective and be like the husband wife relationship is simply like a shadow of the actual way in which God loves the church and God loves each of us individually. 
um, and to know that like there is a God that sees us at our worst and loves us uh, fully is like such an incredibly beautiful picture. Absolutely. So for part two of this epic kiss scene, we're talking about beauty, just simply raw beauty. Unfortunately, this is more visual than verbal, so it might be a bit unsatisfying over the podcast, especially if you've never seen the scene. But what I see here is brilliant, jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring beauty. And you know what's so cool about beauty is that it all belongs to God. All beauty is God's beauty because he created everything that was ever beautiful. He is the master artist, the most talented designer, the unrivaled painter. And he has given us both a craving for beauty as well as an invitation to participate in the further cultivation of his beauty. And we really see this early on in the Genesis creation story. I know we were just in Genesis 3, so this is Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we get 25 straight verses about him doing that, and it's awesome. Then we go down to verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and of every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so we kind of see God taking part in beauty and then also giving humanity the opportunity to continue to take part in the creation of beauty. And then we kind of get this cool thing where God is actually really enjoying his creation, which seems maybe a little counterintuitive to us. And this is the last verse of chapter one. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. And so we had kind of this cool thing where God is sort of like sitting back and like, yeah, I did a great job with that (laughs) you know like Mm -hmm. like he is the artist and uh i want to talk because i'm going through every good endeavor by tim keller with a buddy right now and um there's this really cool uh argument that keller makes how like a lot of the major religions and worldviews have accounts of origins that result as a struggle between like warring cosmic forces Mm -hmm. and he he kind of argues that like that christianity is unique in the fact that genesis is a creation story that's purely like the overflow of a communal existence between three persons. So he says on page 20, indeed, all the powers and beings of heaven and earth are created by him and dependent on him. Creation then is not the aftermath of a battle, but the plan of a craftsman. God made the world not as a warrior digs a trench, but as an artist makes a masterpiece. And so all of this is just kind of serving to say like, God is a God of beauty who creates all beauty and allows it and sustains it and enables us to enjoy it and creates a desire in us to see it. And then sort of my last argument, if you're still with me on this point, 1 Timothy 6, 17. This is just a phenomenal verse right here. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so we start to see kind of the flip side of the coin you were talking about, about pleasure and the curse of sort of like God actually does provide us with things that he wants us to enjoy. And it reminds me of this awesome letter from C.S. Lewis uh, in Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. He has this really cool thing where he talks about like tracing the sunbeams back up to the sun. Uh, I'll just read some of this so you can kind of get a picture of it. I have tried to make every pleasure into a channel of adoration. I don't mean simply by giving thanks for it. One must, of course, give thanks, but I mean something different. How shall I put it? And then he goes on to talk about how like when he feels the wind or like hears the roar, he thinks about like the beauty of the wind and he talks about a few other things in nature as well. Uh, But I really love this line right here. Gratitude exclaims very properly, how good of God to give me this. Adoration says, what must be the quality of that being whose far off and momentary conversations are like this? One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. And so kind of that idea of like, gratitude says it's, it's good that God gave me this, but adoration says like, wow, what must God be like if he lets us enjoy like such significant beauty like this but then in a cool way he kind of says at the end i don't always achieve it one obstacle is inattention another is the wrong kind of attention and so not only is like god giving us the ability to experience beauty but he also kind of like gives us a choice of whether we're gonna uh you know like engage it or not like are we gonna be attentive are we gonna trace the sunbeams back to the sun because we don't always achieve it like we don't always stop and think about beauty and so anyways in this scene with will and elizabeth the beauty is off the charts and i think it's best captured by the music i am a huge music guy i think 
one of my biggest beefs with modern Hollywood is like the trending away from big swelling scores like those of Pirates and Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. And even look at how Harry Potter movies went from the beginning with those big John Williams scores in the first three to like the delicate and dare I say timid backstage roles at the end. Nowadays, composers are told to accompany that the audience shouldn't even know that you're there. Um, anyways, get me off the stage. Sorry for the soapbox, but like, I'm really big on music. And I think that this moment really sells like a high level of beauty. And that's why it feels like the chief gospel moment to me. Hmm. Yeah. I think you make a lot of really great points there, especially the idea that God gives us the opportunity to uh, partake in and consume his beauty and appreciate it for what it is. It actually reminds me of a line. I'm not using this in any of my awards, but a line that Will Turner says earlier in the film, he says, a craftsman is always pleased to hear his work as appreciated. Yes. Do pass my compliments on to your master. I shall. A craftsman is always pleased to hear his work is appreciated. Which is a sneaky gospel line there in there in and of itself. Like God is the ultimate craftsman. And yes, he is pleased to hear that his work is appreciated and adored and admired by the ones that he also created. So I think that fits really well. Yeah, and I think it's just like a really good habit that I'm trying to get into in my life is like making every pleasure into a channel of adoration, sort of questioning what is it that I like about this? In some way, it must be capturing something God has wired in me to want or something about him or asking that C.S. Lewis question from uh, Letters to Malcolm, what must be the quality of that being whose far off and momentary conversations are like this? Tracing sunbeams back to the sun. Mm. And for me, movies is a big part of that. Yeah, 100%. So take me to your Mary Magdalene Award. My Mary Magdalene Award, uh, which for sneaky gospel moment, is actually a pretty sneaky gospel moment, I would say. Um, It's when Jack is imprisoned, and this is earlier in the movie. He is uh, to be executed, um, but then the Black Pearl comes and attacks the town in which he's staying in. It ultimately ends up blasting a cannon uh, through the jail cell of the prisoners that are next to him, and they end up escaping. My sympathy, friend. You've no matter of luck at all. And so all these people, are, these prisoners are locked up and they are trying to coerce this monkey. Or no, sorry, it's a dog. They're trying to coerce this dog to bring over the key so they can unlock the cell. Um, and Jack's like, what are you guys doing? And the, the guy has this great line. He says, excuse us if we haven't resigned ourselves to the gallows just yet. Basically being like, Hey, I'm not ready to die. I'm still going to do everything in my power to save my own life. And you got Jack on the other side who's basically trying to take a nap. He's just chilling, completely resigned to his situation, but also subtly confident that this isn't going to be the end. Um, And I will say this metaphor breaks down in the sense that uh, Jack is not... Uh, in the Jesus position where he is going to fully accept death and carry carry through um, his intended volunteered sacrifice on the cross. Um, He is going to escape again, eventually through his own means. Um, But it reminds me of Jesus's community with prisoners um, and with people who are locked up and are experiencing the same fate as him. And so the passage I'm pulling from is Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. Uh, And this is uh, the story of Jesus with the two thieves who are also on the cross and they're two differing responses to him. Uh, And so here's what it says. It says, uh, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And so we see two incredibly uh, different responses. One is being like, hey Jack, or hey Jesus, save us. Like, I know you have the power to save us. Why don't you just go ahead and do it? And the other end, you got the, the other response being like, hey, I appreciate you. You are sympathizing with me and you are suffering something even though you don't deserve it. Yes, Jack 100% deserves to be in prison. He, he totally deserves that. Um, but in our response to Jesus, are we like, hey, God, why aren't you like doing all this stuff in my life? Why aren't you showing up? Why aren't you healing people? Why aren't you providing me with like all this good stuff and this prosperous life that I feel like I'm supposed to have? Um, or is our focus more on the fact that like there is a God that sympathizes with us deeply enough to suffer the exact same fate, um, deeply enough to suffer that fate um, literally to death, 
Um, and like as long as we're not being crucified, Jesus actually suffered more than we ever will ourselves. Um, and we're asking that God, the God who is dying to remember us um, as he enters into the kingdom of heaven in which he reigns. And so uh, I just think it's a really powerful um, and important conversation to have. Like, are we thinking of Jesus as somebody who's a means to our end uh, that is going to rescue us and give us all these good things? Or are we just asking humbly that the God who would be willing to die for us would remember us in that? Yeah, that's a great scriptural pull. It feels almost like a one-to-one. And I would even say at the premise line, do we really see ourselves as being in jail to sin, Mm. you know? Or do we think we're free? Or, you know, are we really cursed like Barbosa and the Pirates? Yeah, I I agree. And I think, like, when you are literally in prison and death is so clear and eminent, the desire for escape is escalated that much more. Um, And I think one of the tougher problems in our society and just believers in general is we don't see ourselves as being in prison. Like we see ourselves as kind of being on the right path or at least, you know, generally trending towards God at at the very least. And um, that's just like simply not true. There's death and life and there's not really any in between. My Mary Magdalene award is uh, similarly pro Jack, actually. It's saving Elizabeth in kind of his beginning. So when we first meet Jack, he bribes the dock master to not register his ship or his name. Then he proceeds to steal all of that dock master's money without him knowing. I don't know if you remember that, when he kind of like jingles the little pocketbook. (laughs) Hold up there, you. It's a shilling to tie up your boat at the dock. And I shall need to know your name. What do you say to three shillings? And we forget the name. Welcome to Port Royal, Mr. Smith. And then he lies and manipulates the two English guards into letting him get aboard the interceptor with the long run plan of eventually stealing it. This dock is off limits to civilians. I'm terribly sorry I didn't know. If I see one, I shall inform you immediately. So after only a couple of minutes of screen time, we're told very clearly who Jack Sparrow is as a person. He's a lying, stealing, cheating, conniving pirate. But then he does something we don't expect. Elizabeth falls from the aforementioned stone overlook, and Jack dives overboard to save her life. Elizabeth? Elizabeth! The rocks! Sir, it's a miracle she missed them. Will you be saving her then? I can't swim. of the King's Navy, you are. Do not lose this. Shoot him. Father. What? Commodore. Do you really intend to kill my rescuer? And remember, Jack's whole M.O. is to steal a ship and recruit a crew to get back at Barbosa. He has no idea who it is that just fell in. So this truly has nothing to do with his plans. It's purely an unselfish instinct to save a life. And doing so exposes him to the entire English Port Royal Navy, effectively costing him his freedom. But you know what's extra cool about this scene? It doesn't stop at Jack's sacrifice for Elizabeth. Because Jack risked his life for Elizabeth, Elizabeth's heart softens. Remember, Elizabeth's been fascinated with pirates. She has the medallion from eight-year-old Will Turner. She has early reservations about marrying Lorrington. But the Commodore proposed. Fancy that. Now that's a smart match, miss, if it's not too bold to say. It is a smart match. He's a fine man. It's what any woman should dream of marrying. She seems to have some affection for current day blue collar, scrappy, handsome Will Turner. I like calling him scrappy, handsome because I feel like he's Young, a different kind of attractiveness. <laughs> yeah, I, I just feel like he's a different kind of attractiveness than Lorrington. Elizabeth, you look absolutely stunning. Will, it's so good to see you. I had a dream about you last night. About me? Elizabeth, is that entirely proper for you to. About the day we met, do you remember? How could I forget, Miss Swan? Will, how many times must I ask you to call me Elizabeth? At least once more, Miss Swan. As always. Uh, anyways, she seems to have some affection for him, and then she seems to kind of question the English blanketing, no questions asked, death penalty for all pirates no matter what. Uh, so she kind of has some curiosity about pirates, right? But it's not really a logical argument that's needed to win her over to hashtag team pirates. It's actually love, I think, 
For her to change, for her character to arc from anti-pirates to pro-pirates, what Elizabeth really needs is to get to know a pirate that she can approve of, that she can understand and relate to, and that cares about her. And what better way to humanize a pirate than to have him dive into deadly water to save your life? By saving Elizabeth from death, Jack actually draws her to pirating and to himself. And this is the biblical sequence and manner of salvation. God dies for us, and it moves us to follow him. Or more precisely, the Holy Spirit regenerates our souls, carrying us from death to life through Jesus' sufficient atonement on the cross. And after being regenerated, God gives us the gift of faith in him. So a lot of it is about like the sequence of events. Like Jack dives in and saves Elizabeth first, and then Elizabeth has like the change of heart. So I'm going with John 3 for this. This is Jesus meeting up with Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, at night. And Nicodemus, you know, is this very intelligent Jewish leader. And Jesus is just kind of like stirring up trouble for him in some ways and creating a lot of uncertainty about what Nicodemus actually thinks is true. So this is just, I'm only going to read verses 1 to 5. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so it's this uh, born of the water and the spirit, like baptism, new life, new worldview, new person. As Shailin says in his song, Regeneration, in this new birth, the spirit is the source and the agent. The water symbolizes spiritual purification. Flesh can only produce flesh. That's true and factual. Regenerating work of the spirit is supernatural. It's kind of like the wind, which is free east to west. Can't perceive the steps. You can only see its effects. In the same way, the Holy Spirit chooses who he pleases to sovereignly open their eyes to the truth of Jesus. And so we kind of have this passage where like, Nicodemus, what does it take to enter the kingdom of God that you talk about, God, Jesus? You know, what is this kingdom of God? You must be born again. You can't even see it unless you're born again. And just think about the nature of that metaphor. You know, can you decide to be born or does someone have to do that for you? You know, I had no control personally over how I was born. I don't know about you, Graham, but like, <laughs> I think this idea of like second birth is extremely supernatural, like, and really puts the agency on God and sort of gets to that sequence. Like the faith is a gift that's given by God to us after the Holy Spirit has regenerated us. And so uh, I want to talk about Romans 6, 4 real quick to kind of hit on the baptism because I think there's some powerful symbolism in like Jack rescuing Elizabeth from the water. Like she goes into that water anti-pirates and she kind of like comes out of that water like much more pro-pirates. So this is Romans 6, 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So kind of that imagery of like death to life, uh, baptism as symbolically playing that transition out, and now we're walking in newness of life. So, and then two quick caveats to this Mary Magdalene pick. One, you might have noticed that in my Lazarus Award, I said that Elizabeth is like the perfect bride we don't deserve as sinning Will Turners, but that here I'm saying Elizabeth is actually very curious about pirating and metaphorically kind of sin here. And you're right. But the beauty of this whole enterprise is that I can take movie moments out of context because we're here to find lines, scenes, characters, and themes that trace truth in the gospel because this movie isn't the Bible. We're looking for glimpses. We're tracing sunbeams back to the sun. And in this isolated moment, Jack is like God and Elizabeth is like us. Whereas in my Lazarus Award, Elizabeth is like God and Will is like us. And then two... Right after Elizabeth starts to warm up to Jack in pirating, he immediately holds her hostage, like with a knife to her throat, and bargains her life for his, and basically saying, you know, we're all square. Finally. No, ah! ah! don't shoot! I knew you'd warm up to me. Commodore Noring's in my effects, please. And my hat. Commodore! And that's obviously not something that Jesus does, and it negates the entire metaphor up to that point, to which I would again say, you're right, but I'm looking for a glimpse, and so I'm cutting the moment off where I choose to cut it off. Context is everything, and I'm severely limiting it here. So there you have it, Jack diving in after Elizabeth as an explicit gospel salvation moment, and then Elizabeth's response to the gospel as a sort of regeneration and baptism sequence. Thoughts on that? I think that's an important thing that gets lost in the gospel, uh, especially when we look at the difference between uh, faith and works uh, and it's that like love compels us to do good works like again we reference uh, Ephesians 2 8 through 10 a ton but like we are Christ's handiwork we're God's handiwork um, 
and like set apart prepared to do good works which he laid out before us like we are uh compelled to do good because we have first been loved um and i think that's one of the things that like i struggle with and i i think a lot of believers struggle with is like the our our task is not to go out and do good things and love good people like love people first our our task is to like know that we're loved and out of knowing that we're loved that then gives us permission to go and love other people but it feels like those things get um switched around really easily in christian culture yeah and we just want to do 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 you know so give me your false prophet award for non-biblical argument that this movie makes my false prophet award is for when Jack cheats death in the final gallows scene. Um, and so one of the things that I think this movie argues is that we can actually escape death and by being cunning and conniving and manipulative, we can actually barter ourselves out of these bad situations that we get ourselves in uh, into. And so um, I really think that like the truth on the flip side of that is that we don't escape death by evading it. We escape we escape death by atoning for it, believing that the price has already been paid for our, our sin through the blood of Jesus. And so you get the scene where Jack is on the gallows um, and, you know, then Will kind of tells Elizabeth that he loves her and then throws the sword. And as, you know, the noose drops, Jack is able to stand on top of the sword. And there's this really fun escape scene throughout which Jack finally, you know, remember this as the day when you almost caught captain jack sparrow yeah baby maybe we'll insert that quote to make it sound a little bit better <laughs> this is the day that you will always remember as the day that you... jack is essentially manipulating his way out of the situation and there's no real justice here like nobody is paying for the crimes i think it's actually really funny because um, the audio gets kind of backgrounded but they list off literally all of jack's crimes and it's just so extensive you know ripping off people stealing endangering like all these different crazy things impersonating a clergy of the church of england and he's like all giggly about it he's like oh yeah that was hilarious <laughs> that was so funny um and so uh the verse i pulled here is matthew i got two verses i got matthew 16 21 through 23 um from that time on from that time on jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders chief priests and scribes and that he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life essentially jesus being like i have to die in order for uh, justice to be fulfilled for this punishment of sin and peter i love peter dude peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him far be it from you lord he said this shall never happen to you like of course jesus we're not gonna let you die we're gonna help you escape this situation but Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So I think Peter's kind of like the jack in this situation. Like, oh, we're going to figure out, and, and even Will, like, we're going to figure out how to get you out of the situation. Mm-hmm. It's fine. We're going to save your life. But Jesus, Jesus is not a victim. Like, Jesus is not a victim. He's a volunteer. And so... Um, what he's doing here is like accepting the fact that he has to die, that for justice to exist, there has to be a punishment. Um, and like freedom, Jack seems to believe in this idea that freedom is found in lawlessness. Like if I can just get to the black pearl and like get on my own ship, it I'll be free. I can do whatever I want to like, that's not real freedom. Um, and then the final verse I'm sticking with here, Hebrews two, nine through 10, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Again, suffering is ultimately what produces endurance. Suffering is what brings about salvation. It's not escaping the very problem of sin like Jack is doing right here. It's actually atoning for it. Totally. And I think Jack's like all out evasion of death is a theme that's very much explored in the movies to come. Like he, a lot of his motives is sort of like, almost Voldemort-esque of uh, how can I escape death? How can I live forever? And uh, yeah, you're right. Like like he says, the pearl represents freedom. It represents lawlessness. It represents like a lack of danger. Like he's running from his problems, not facing them. It's kind of a coping thing. What a ship is. What the black pearl really is. Is freedom. Yeah, agreed. He's not addressing the problem. He's simply, uh, I don't know, pushing it off to deal with another day. Yeah, and maybe I don't want to sound too condemning because I think in a lot of ways that's me too. You know, like I'm I'm a lot quicker to hop on a ship and 
try to sail away from something than addressing it head on. Aren't we all? My false prophet award is similarly with Jack, although it's different. It's twofold. One, the idea that like revenge satisfies or is a worthy endeavor. And then two, like how he gets that and that being kind of presented as okay by the filmmakers. So um, actually it is a little tricky now that I say by the filmmakers because I think in a lot of ways they are not necessarily arguing that these things are okay. Maybe it's more so that like we as the audience take away that these things are okay. Kind of akin to like the song Let It Go and Frozen. Like we know that like Elsa is not supposed to stay on that ice castle by herself forever. And like the movie argues that she needs something more than that. But that like a lot of times we take it away as this great rebellion anthem of like, oh, look, Elsa do it. So I do it. So like maybe it's not really a true false prophet award. I think I still have some qualms about the false prophet award and like whether the filmmakers are really sort of like arguing for things that are not biblical or how much of it is just like our perception of that. But anyways, this twofold goal, revenge satisfies and then how he gets it. So first, Jack's entire overarching character desire, like the one thing that informs all his decisions, like we talked about the anthropic principle at the very beginning. In this movie, it's to avenge Barbosa and to reclaim the Pearl. Every move he makes from killing British guards to leveraging Will Turner is to get Barbosa back, highlighted by the fact that he still carries around the one-shot pistol he was marooned with as a sort of poetic irony, like Barbosa marooned me with this only pistol with one bullet, and I vowed to avenge him by killing him with that very bullet. He escaped the island, and he still has that single shot. Oh, he won't use it, though, save on one man. He's mutinous for his mate. Barbosa. Aye. Off you go. Last time you left me a pistol with one shot. With the powers, you're right. Ten years you carry that pistol, and now you waste your shot. So yes, it's poetic, but no, it's not biblical. And again, it's a false prophet award, not because Jack's motives are not biblical in nature, but because the movie seems to kind of argue that, like, this is a noble course of action and that his pursuit is something that we should be rooting for too. So do you kind of see that distinction there? His hunt is glorified and his revenge is celebrated. And I think that really butts up with Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Here we go. Verse 21, Jesus talking. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And then all the way down, verse 38, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So very clearly, Jesus is sort of saying, love your enemies, care for those who persecute you, be different. You know, I'm, I'm calling you to a new standard of life. And there's absolutely no tolerance for Jack, you know, making his entire MO to avenge Barbosa. Um, but more importantly, I want to talk about how Jack pursues this vengeance because his means, Graham, are downright satanic. And the movie certainly glorifies them. And let me be the first to say they do a fantastic job. We all root for Jack Sparrow. I mean, he's enticing. He's attractive. He's winsome. He's witty. And, and all of this is so great. Uh, it's absolutely movie magic. But I think at the same time, it takes our eyes off the fact that his methods are just straight up satanic. His biggest weapon is lying. And not only is it lying, but it's like whispering into people's ears to manipulate them into doing something that they think they want, but that ultimately benefits him and ruins them. So like above all, he's toying with people's desires. We could literally go through the entire movie and pick him apart scene by scene by scene. But for the sake of time, I'm limiting myself to nine because I think nine is kind of a satanic number, you know? <laughs> Dante's got nine circles in hell and uh, a cat has nine lives. What else is there? Uh, <laughs> there's more stuff, I promise. Uh, it's not coming to mind right now. But uh, okay, so number one, preying on the insecurity of the guards at the dock, telling them that they should be up with the others at you know the big party, uh, but that essentially he's like attempting them to leave. And in doing so, he's kind of accusing them of not being good enough. Like, you guys are bad guards. If you were better, you'd be up there. Apparently, there's some sort of high-toned and fancy to-do up at the fort, eh? How could it be that two upstanding gentlemen such as yourselves did not merit an invitation? Someone has to make sure this dock stays off limits to civilians. Two, he fulfills 
all the archetypal underrated aspects of the devil, lulling Lorrington and the guards into thinking that he's a terrible pirate. I don't see your ship. Captain? I'm in the market, as it were. No additional shots nor powder. A compass that doesn't point north. And I half expected it to be made of wood. You are without doubt the worst pirate I've ever heard of. And after doing so, he offers this line that really reminds me of John Milton's intelligent, witty, jealous, angsty victim, Satan. One good deed is not enough to redeem a man of a lifetime of wickedness. Though it seems enough to condemn him. Three, he tells Will that Will needs a girl, then cheats to win the fight with him. And I practice with them three hours a day. You need to find yourself a girl, mate. You cheated. Pirate. Four, he tells Will he'll take him to Elizabeth, and all the while he's planning on using him as leverage. Will, Mr. Turner? I've changed my mind. If you spring me from this cell, I swear on pain of death, I shall take you to the Black Pearl and your bonnie lass. You've been planning this from the beginning. Ever since you learned my name. Five, he convinces sailors they want to sail for him and will get the pearl when they're done, when what he's really going to do is use them to get back at Barbosa, and they don't really know about that. Aye, that one. What say you? Aye! Aye! Six, he tries to convince Barbosa that he should be willing to trade the pearl for Will Turner. So you expect to leave me standing on some beach with nothing but a name and your word, it's the one I need, and watch you sail away in my ship. And then when he fails to convince Barbosa, he instead asks to be sent to negotiate with the British so that he can actually control the situation himself. I'm having a thought here. Oh, what say we run up a flag of truce, I scurry over to the interceptor, and I negotiate the return of your medallion, eh? What say you to that? Seven, he convinces Lorrington and the British that what they most want is to capture the Pearl, the last big pirate threat knowing that the cursed and immortal pirates will actually dominate them at Isla de Muerta. And that's like a really big one. Like he's preying on Lorrington and the British's greed and like desire for vengeance. If I may be so bold as to check my professional opinion, the pearl was listing near to scuppers after the battle. It's very unlikely she'd be able to make good time. Think about it. The black pearl, the last real pirate threat in the Caribbean, mate. Can you pass that out? Eight, he convinces Barbosa not to end the curse because the Dauntless is waiting for them just outside the cave, and that instead they need to retain their immortal curse a bit longer. And so again, he's preying on Barbosa's greed to have two flagships instead of one, while we know all along that Jack will never sail under Barbosa's leadership again after being marooned by him, and that he's truly plotting to lure Barbosa's men out of the cave as a distraction to get Barbosa alone with he and Will so that they can lift the curse when most advantageous to Jack, enabling Jack to shoot Barbosa and take the pearl himself. Just hear me out, mate. You order your men to row out to the Dauntless, they do what they do best. <laughs> Robert's your uncle, Fanny's your aunt. There you are with two ships. The makings of your very own fleet. Of course, you'll take the grandest as your flagship, and who's to argue? But what of the Pearl? Name me, Captain. I'll sail under your colors. I'll give you 10% of me plunder, and you get to introduce yourself as Commodore. And if all of those weren't enough, he straight up admits that he chooses dishonesty to get what he wants over and over and over again. I must admit, Jack, I thought I had you figured. But it turns out you're a hard man to predict. Me, I'm dishonest. And a dishonest man you can always trust to be dishonest. Honestly. So yes, he's dishonest, but it's really the ability to convince people that they want something that they don't really want. And that's what makes him so satanic. And that's exactly what Satan does with us, going all the way back to the very first story of Satan that we have in the Bible, what Graham read earlier, Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. Crafty, think about that, crafty. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so, like, the main temptation is, you know, be like God. Uh, what you really want is to be like God, and you really want to know good and evil, and what you really want is to choose for yourself. Like, he's he's trying to convince 
Eve that she doesn't know her own desires, that that humanity, that Adam doesn't actually know what he wants. Um, and so that's kind of what I see, that very satanic, kind of like Iago and Othello for Shakespeare and, and other characters like these Faustian packs where the second, you know, Will lets Jack out of jail, he's kind of sort of like shaking hands with the devil, like, okay, I'll get you this, you get me that. And then it just all goes to crap like we see in Mephistopheles and Dr. Faustus. And I don't know, it's just kind of playing on these classic archetypal satanic tendencies. What do you think? Yeah, I would agree. Uh, very paradise losty. Jack is incredibly conniving, manipulative, uh, and is and is so cunning. And that's what, in some ways, makes him such an appealing character. And it's why some people are so fascinated with Satan in uh, Paradise Lost. Is that like, in some ways, he feels like the hero, right? Like we look at uh, Pirates of the Caribbean and we love Jack Sparrow because he gets what he wants. Um, and when in reality, like, that's not necessarily. Uh, like Satan is very much not the hero; he's the anti-hero, right? A lot more in line with you know the Tony Sopranos and the you know Walter uh, Whites of the world. And so, um, yeah, I would I would definitely agree with you here. Yeah, and it's not to say that like we can't find those glimpses because right, I picked for my Mary Magdalene. Jack dives in to save Elizabeth, and in so like warms her heart to him. And you know, like there are these very biblical moments that Jack can have. And I'm the first to say that I really root for Jack Sparrow. I mean, I think he's amazing, but I think there's a false prophet here. Okay, give me your Jesus Award for the most Christ-like character in this movie. Jesus Award in this movie definitely has to go to Will. And Will does a bunch of different things that are very Christ-like in this film. I'm just going to list them off. One, he is willing to die to rescue Elizabeth from Barbosa. The boy's fate is regrettable. But then so is his decision to engage in piracy. To rescue me? To prevent anything from happening to me? Um, he says, I will literally die for her to Jack. Just go. How far are you willing to go to save her? I'd die for her. Oh, good. Now where is he? He, too, he willingly offers his blood as a sacrifice to end the curse of the Black Pearl. My name is Will Turner. My father was bootstrap Bill Turner. His blood runs in my veins. Three, he actually serves himself as the rightful sacrifice due to the heritage of his father, bootstrap Bill Turner. He didn't waste it. Four, he has an intense pursuit of Elizabeth that is predicated on pure love. Elizabeth, I should have told you every day from the moment I met you. I love you. Um, and I'd say those are kind of my big four, but really what, what Will demonstrates here is a Christ-like compassion for people around him, specifically for Elizabeth. He, I think there's a lot of cool stuff um, heritage-wise that is at play here. His blood is necessary um, due to the heritage of his father, um, which is true, I think, very much of, of Jesus. Like, Jesus' blood is necessary because it's the only true, like, truly pure blood that exists on earth and therefore right. the only suitable uh, atonement for the sacrifice of sin. The verse I pulled mainly uh, was Philippians 2, 5 through 8. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Um, that God didn't see equality, or that Jesus didn't see equality with God as something to be grasped. He was willing to humble himself. He was willing to sacrifice everything. He was willing to risk it all in order to win back the ones that um, have been evading him for so long, which is us. Um, and so I think Will's pursuit of Elizabeth in this film is a lot like Jesus's uh, pursuit of us. So explain to me how it's Christ-like to go from a blacksmith who obeys the law to a pirate who's an outlaw vigilante. Mm. It's a good question. Um, I think there is a, definitely a little bit of fall off there. And Jesus didn't come to dismantle the law. He came to fulfill it. And so he fulfilled the prophecies like he was a carpenter. He was kind of a average dude per se, lived that for most of his life. Um, but ultimately was like called into his ministry and he's called into adventure, something kind of greater than, greater than himself. Will, I would say Will definitely acts outside the confines of what is socially acceptable. Um, which I would say Jesus does, but again, Jesus is not the one who is necessarily breaking laws to accomplish his goal. So it's an imperfect parallel, but I think more than any character in this movie, Will embodies the most Christ-like personality or characteristics. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to push you a little bit. It's good. Uh, I, I'm actually giving my Jesus Award 
to Bootstrap Bill Turner. Uh, this is very similar to your Charles Carroll pick from National Treasure Ooh. because we actually never get to see Bootstrap, and he's at the bottom of the ocean. But here's what we do know about him. You knew William Turner. Oh, Bootstrap Bill. We knew him. Never sat well with Bootstrap, what we did to Jack Sparrow. The mutiny and all. He said it wasn't right with the code. That's why he sent off a piece of the treasure to you, as it were. He said we deserve to be cursed. And remain cursed. Super blighter. Good man. Well, as you can imagine, that didn't sit too well with the captain. <laughs> that didn't sit too well with the captain at all. Tell him what Barbosa did. I'm telling a story! So, what the captain did, he strapped a cannon to Bootstraps Bootstraps. Bootstraps Bootstraps. And last we saw of old Bill Turner, he was sinking to the crushing black oblivion of Baby Jones' locker. Of course, it was only after that we learned we needed his blood to lift the curse. That's what you call ironic. <laughs> <laughs> Three big parallels here. Number one, Bootstrap Bill believed Barbosa's mutiny of Jack was wrong, and he knew what it would cost for him to stand up to Barbosa and the crew. Like Jesus, Bootstrap Bill threw away his life for what he knew was right. So very simply... He goes down for his belief, you know. He he sinks with a cannonball strapped to his feet because he believed that the mutiny was wrong and that they shouldn't have gone after the treasure. That's very biblical, very Christ-like. Number two, like Jesus, everyone has a different opinion of him. Is he a good man or not? You know, that's a central theme, if not the central theme of this movie. Can someone be a pirate and a good man? It's played on over and over throughout. And Will, your Jesus Award winner, his entire arc is predicated on how he will view his father. Was he a pirate? Was he a good man? Or was he both? And Will starts his arc as a pirate hater. I practice three hours a day so that when I meet a pirate, I can kill it. And then he denies that his father was a pirate. Good man. Good pirate. I swear you look just like him. It's not true. He was a merchant sailor. A good, respectable man who obeyed the law. He was a bloody pirate, a scallywag. My father was not a pirate. And then by the middle, he's accepting that he was a pirate, but hoping to believe that there was something else. You knew William Turner. Oh, bootstrap Bill. We knew him. And then by the end, he's fully arced into believing that his dad was both a pirate and a good man. And that's why we have him standing symbolically between Jack and Lorrington. And like, it's so cool to see kind of all those arcs resolve in those last five minutes of the movie. I think it's just perfect writing. He's a pirate and a good man. You forget your place, Turner. It's right here between you and Jack. Um, but the question is, you know, how do you and me view Bootstrap? And who do we think that Jesus was? Because everybody from Hitler to Stalin to Biden to Trump has an opinion on who Jesus is. You know, like, what do we make of this guy? And ultimately, A.W. Tozier, this is a theologian I like, says, what we think about when we think of God is the most important thing about us. Who is our opinion of Jesus? Who is our opinion of God? Um and, and how do we let ourselves be informed by that opinion? What are we basing our answer off of? Anyways, part three. It's Bootstrap's blood that lifts the curse. And the cursed pirates know and regret having sentenced Bootstrap to eternal drowning because they now know they needed his blood. They did it to themselves. And this is textbook tragic irony. And this is exactly what you were talking about. And it all kind of reminds me of the story of the Roman soldier at the cross from Jesus' death on the cross. And this is Matthew 27, 50 to 54. So literally, this is Jesus's final kind of hurrah here. Uh, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, aka he died. Verse 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this man was the son of God. And so we have this really cool moment where the Roman officers who had just 
unjustly executed, crucified Jesus say, oh my gosh, what have we done? Surely this guy was actually who he says he was. Surely he was the son of God. And that's exactly what the pirate Barbosa's crew does. You know, they send Bootstrap to the depths and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, what have we done? We need his blood. We are cursed in sin until we have the payment like you talked about. So kind of our our, uh, awards are sort of starting to overlap here. Uh, But the good news is that the story doesn't end there. Just like Charles Carroll from National Treasure Bootstrap Bill's plan was to secretly ship one of the cursed coins to his son, William. William would grow up and have that same blood, just as in Christ we have the Holy Spirit and are spiritually attached, inseparably abiding in the vine forever. Bootstrap left his life with a plan to carry out his message, just as Jesus left the Spirit and the Gospel with the twelve disciples to carry unto the ends of the earth. So that's Bootstrap's threefold Jesus parallel, dying for what he knew was right, controversial after having done so, and then the only blood that can atone for sin, complete and continued through a child of the promise. I think there's so much going on there, uh, but I love it. I love the Charles Carroll pick that's uh, not even getting much screen time, but it's it's even interesting to think about the next couple of movies, how the character of Bootstrap Bill is, is further developed. And um, yeah, I think well done. Yeah, and I think it's just cool to see for me like Will's tension of like who was my father really play out throughout the course of the movie sort of. Could he be a pirate? Surely not. Uh, And then by the end, you know, and a good man. Um, So that's it for the awards and now on to the Q&A. But first, an announcement. Need new running shoes? Want to support a local business? Omega Sports sells running shoes and a variety of athletic apparel and equipment both in stores and online at www.omegasports.com. For online orders of at least $90, they offer free shipping everywhere and use the redemption code JIM for Jesus and Movies. Doing so gives you 10% off your purchase and gives another 10% towards our production costs. Again, that's www.omegasports.com, code J-I-M for a discount and to support us. And now on to our Q&A, and we've got a good one here from patron Bess McLawhorn. Follow-up from last week, does treasure here have a different connotation for Pirates of the Caribbean compared to National Treasure? How does a cursed treasure fit into the narrative? Yeah, I think this is a question we kind of covered a little bit earlier in the podcast, but in National Treasure, there's this tension between Ben believing that the treasure is inherently valuable and worth finding for the world's sake versus Ian in National Treasure who wants to find the treasure and kind of use it for his own gain. And treasure in Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, is very much the latter in the sense that the pirates want to find it in order to spend it and in order to fulfill their own kind of gratuitous desires. And so um, we don't really get a much as much of the picture of like, hey, this treasure is inherently good. It is worth selling everything for. Um, it's more that this treasure is inherently valuable, but valuable, but it's not a good treasure. It's a cursed treasure, and it's not going to bring about goodness for us. It's simply just uh, indicative of the, this deeper problem of greed that we all suffer from. And one other thing I'll say is that I think the treasure kind of provides an interesting set of circumstances for the larger forces and character traits to battle over in this movie. And C.S. Lewis has some cool stuff in the Screwtape Letters about how, like, war or famine or disease or economic prosperity or political turmoil, all these different conditions in life are not, like, inherently good or evil, but that they're just kind of like the battlegrounds over which spiritual forces are interacting and over which humans make meaningful decisions. And so in some ways, I think treasure kind of does the same. It's like the treasure, whether it's cursed or not, provides... A set of circumstances in which characters can make decisions that are either biblical or not biblical. Does that make sense? Yeah, I would agree with that. And I want to hearken back to Jack's line to Will that not all treasures are gold. And like, I think Will's treasure here is really Elizabeth. Like Elizabeth is the one that he seeks after and the one that he wants to find and the one that has inherent value. It should be. She's amazing. Oh, man. Come on. Kira Knightley. Um, I mean, he, he picked good treasure. Very good treasure. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I think like everybody's got their own treasure. Uh, and sometimes it's just easier to identify what treasure is when it has this sort of like physical shine to it. Totally. So sadly, we have to stop the discussion there. But before we close, here's a quick shout out to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this discussion possible. Courtney Carlock, Craig Carlock, Kristen Carlock, Jacob DeRizio, Ben Dunbar, Graham Hooten, Janet Hooten, Ken Hooten, Bess McLawhorn, John Pabone, Andy Simmons, Helen Webster, and Clay Young. Thank you so much for your support. 
few housekeeping things. Our monthly production schedule is posted on our Instagram at Jesus and Movies. Give us a follow and a like so you can see what movies are up next. And today we posted our schedule for November. So you might notice there's no patron picks in November. That's uh, one, to give you all time to see the movies in advance. And two, it's also because December will be only patron picks. So get what? really excited about that. So if you'd like to support the Jesus Movies podcast, Patreon is for sure our preferred way of support. And signing up for a dollar a month lets you pick the movies, submit questions for the Q&A, get shouted out on the podcast and featured on our Instagram. So if you'd like to join the group, please do so at patreon.com slash Movies or on the free Patreon app. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple, please give us a review and let us know what you think. It really helps us improve, figure out what's working, what isn't, as well as reach new people. Thank you so much for joining us on the Jesus Movies podcast, and we hope you found some goodness, truth, and beauty. Know that Jesus paid the curse of sin and death once and for all, and we'll see you next week.